You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that what they are doing are that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are continuing uh, through our series in this, and I have to admit, strange book called Ecclesiastes, where the preacher or the teacher, our sort of tour guide, is exploring all of life under the sun, our whole human experience. And the word that he uses to describe our human experience, a word that is repeated nearly 40 times in this book, is the word hevel. Our English translations read vanity, or maybe it says meaninglessness in your translation, or futility. But the word in the original language, the original Hebrew language, hevel, means mist, uh, vapor, or smoke. So he isn't saying life has no meaning. He is not saying that life is empty and void. What the preacher is saying, however, is that everything in life is elusive. It's fleeting. It's like chasing after the wind. It can't be caught. Or like smoke, it's there. It's real. It has property, but it can't be grasped. You can't control life. You can't take life by the horns, no matter what we're told. Life can't be manipulated. You can't take charge of it. The moment, in fact, that you grasp at life, poof, it's gone, leaving you frustrated. Now, let me see if I can get an amen on this. Uh, One of the weirdest TV shows to ever air was the series called Lost. (laughs) Right? Amen. Um, so, okay, so, uh, people in an airplane survive a plane crash, they end up on an island that they discover is unlike any island. Is it heaven? Is it hell? Is it purgatory? You're stuck, but you can leave. How does this work? So many plot holes. And as they're there, they discover that this island is full of monsters. The most, you know, notorious is the smoke monster. And what they also discover is this island that they're on has actually been inhabited by others for a long time. And these others have essentially built this solar fence that keeps the smoke monster out of their territory. It cannot cross the threshold. In fact, there's this scene where it's chasing two women and then they cross the solar fence or whatever. They hit it on and and the smoke comes and hits it and it can't go any further. It's off limits as a smoke-free space. One of the misconceptions that we often have, and I think especially we as Christians, is that there's gonna be areas of our lives that are off limits from the smoke. 
hevel-free environments in our lives. That we, because we trusted in Jesus, because we have new life and salvation in him, that we are now entitled to safe spaces where frustration and futility cannot cross into it. Our little slice of heaven protected from the outside world. Maybe it's a relationship. This is a hevel-free relationship. Or maybe it's a place. You're just like, it's your peaceful place. For me, it's my morning time. Before anyone else is awake, before any other noise in the house, it's just quiet and peaceful. It's heaven. But as the preacher has reiterated, all of life is vanity. If it is under the sun, it's filled with vanity. Right? The relationship eventually becomes contentious. Doesn't matter how much you love that person or how much that person loves you, there's going to be conflict. Smoke is going to fill it. And that peaceful space, it eventually gets invaded by something and some intruder comes into it and makes it no longer peaceful. For me, in my morning, things disrupt it like the smoke alarm going off at 5 a.m. Why does the smoke alarm always have to go off at the least convenient time? It's never in the afternoon. It's like always in the middle of the night, early morning. Or I get up, I open the door, and we're out of coffee, or I walk past the dog, and I realize he's thrown up in its crate, or I look out the window, and I realize that there's a broken sprinkler, and I'm like, we're in a drought. I, I have to fix this. I can't just leave it. The, the time, the space, the relationship, it's always invaded with futility. The smoke always crosses the threshold into the spaces we thought were off limits. And what the preacher's expressing in our passage today is that the hevel doesn't even stop at the doors of the church. It gets in here too. And there's even going to be futility and frustration within our religious experience. This is the context of these seven verses that we're looking at here today in the house of God. Now, for Old Testament believers, this was the temple. This was the place of sacrifice and prayer and vows where God's people gathered to worship God. For us today, New Testament Christians, the application for us is the gathered church. We are the new temple where we worship God together through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, where we gather to listen to God's voice through the word preached, where we offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, where we fulfill our vows and our commitments as members of the body of Christ. Now, as sacred and as meaningful as this moment is, and I hope that you know that it is, as cherished as this is as we gather as the church, in fact, this right here is so valuable that Jesus shed his blood to obtain this for us. This is not a trivial thing. But this, however, is still a hevel place. This is a place that is filled with the smoke of frustration and futility. There's drama here. There's confusion here. Hurt happens here. Disappointment happens here. Unmet expectations happen here. All the typical stuff of life happens here too. It comes with the territory of being people in the church. And it will happen until Christ returns. So manage your expectations. The church is always going to be a heavy place until Jesus comes back for his bride. And so the question that we have to consider this morning honestly is how does the smoke enter here? How does the frustration 
and the futility of life make its way into the church. And what we can gather from this passage, and here's the honest moment, what we can gather from this passage is that it comes here through us. The hevel, the futility, the vanity is in our religious experience. It's in our corporate worship. It's in reality church because we bring it with us. And we know this based on the preacher's instructions in this passage. He is not telling us where to go in order to find the right church. He's not giving us instructions on how to find a peaceful, perfect environment where we can worship God and grow without distractions. He's not telling us how to make sure that other people are acting in a sort of way that makes us easier, it makes it easier for us to focus on God and live devoted to him. In fact, the search for the perfect church and the search for perfect people is itself going to be a chasing after wind. Your church shopping experience is likely chasing after wind. And the moment you do find the perfect church, if it existed, you'll mess it up by being there. He is instructing us, however, regarding our own approach to God. Look at me again in verse 1. Guard what? Your steps when you go to the house of God. I've got to address my own steps. I'm, I'm always so focused on someone else or, you know, so-and-so. They, they really need to hear this this morning. No, I need to address my own steps. I need to address my own attitude towards God. I need to address my own lack of devotion toward him. I've got to admit my own foolishness. I've got to admit my own hasty speech. I've got to admit my own broken vows and commitment. Which goes to show us that the frustrations and the challenges that we often face, and we're gonna face, when we engage God in corporate worship, have far, far less to do with the worship service or the style of music, or the style of preaching, or the location of the church, or the size of the church, or the demographic of its worshipers, or the programs that it has or doesn't have, and far more to do with us. I am fighting my own frustration with me. I bring the hevel into my own Christian experience. You bring the hevel into your own Christian experience. And so when we're asked, what's wrong with the church today? The humble Christian begins with this, me, me. But the good news is that the church is also the place where God is transforming me. I bring my mess, I bring my futility, God brings grace, healing, transformation. Amen? So with that said, we are in the wisdom literature, by the way, and the preacher has clear instructions on how we can still experience meaningful worship. Real, lasting, fulfilling, faithful devotion to God in a life that is invaded by all of the vanity and how we reality as a church can be a church that is thoughtful in our worship, growing in our devotion, and devoted in our commitments. And all, 
in this passage, I think that there are three instructions that show us how we can live into this. The preacher gives us three instructions. Draw near to God, hear God, and fear God, if you're taking notes. Let's begin with draw near to God. Look with me again in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Not if you go, but when you go. So the assumption is God's people are gathering together with God's people to worship the Lord. This is the assumption over the life of the believer. But what we can't take for granted is the grace that's being mentioned here. That even the fact that we're being invited to draw near to God, it is grace, grace, grace. The fact that God says to come into his presence is God's kindness. Let's look at the story of the scriptures. If you remember the story of Adam and Eve, that sin entered into the garden, entered into the human experience through Adam and Eve's rebellion towards God. And as a result, they were expelled from the garden temple. They were literally driven away from the presence of a holy God. And yet, as we read on, what we see is that the whole of Scripture is the story of God seeking to reunite us. The story of the lengths that God has gone to to bring us near again through his son, Jesus Christ, overcoming the sin that has divided us and offering us the holiness that is required to remain in communion with God. The, the, the Apostle Peter in the New Testament tells us this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So what that tells us is that drawing near to God is not first our action towards God. Drawing near to God is first God's action towards us. This is a call of response to what God has already initiated in his son, Jesus Christ. And the temple, or what we see here, the house of God, that's just a glimpse of what God desires to do in the unfolding of redemptive history. In the New Testament, we see that God is preparing a new heavens. God is preparing a new earth where he will once and for all make his dwelling place with his people. All of human history, all of biblical history, all of redemptive history is moving toward God being fully reconciled to his people. And what we see here is one of the many gracious invitations to be with God. Do not take for granted this call to draw near to God. But while drawing near to God is grace, and it's a gracious invitation, it is still something that we're being told here to be careful about. We have to be extremely careful when we draw near to God. In fact, the preacher is warning us that a casual, half-hearted approach to worshiping God, and I'll use his words here, is foolish, it's evil, and it's dangerous to our faith. There's a warning behind these words. Be on guard. Guard your steps. Those in present danger, beware. Or as Ice Cube put it, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? In Exodus chapter 3, we read that Moses, the great leader of Israel, he was out in the wilderness tending to his flocks, minding his own business, just a normal day. And all of a sudden, he turns and he sees a burning bush, which wouldn't have been uncommon. You know, dry desert, dry heat, lightning. I don't know. This could have happened. 
But what was phenomenal about this is that the bush is burning, but it's not consuming the plant. So he turns aside to see it, to get a closer look. And in Exodus 3, we read this, that when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush saying, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He's drawing him near. Yes, come to me. But not like that. Not cavalier. Not casually. Not as if I am common. See, we have absolutely misunderstood God's invitation to come as we are. We often say that. Just come as you are. But we have misunderstood that if we think that that means that we can just casually stroll into God's presence. No big deal. Yeah, I belong here. Yes, we have access to God through Jesus Christ. Yes, we can draw near confidently through faith. In fact, we are to draw near through faith. That is the only way that we can draw near to God. But God is still holy. God is still a consuming fire. God is still described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Read Psalm 18. It describes God with smoke coming out of his nostrils, riding on the thunder, fierce, holy, majestic. The writer of Ecclesiastes writes here in verse 2 that God is in heaven and you are on earth. He is putting us in our place. Yes, God is present But he is still far above us. He's still high above us in majesty. He is still high above us in holiness. So approach him with humility. Approach him thoughtfully. Approach him repentantly. Approach him wholeheartedly. Approach him like he's God, for goodness sake. Now, some are going to say, I can already hear it. No, 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 no. This is the Old Testament way of approaching God. This is Ecclesiastes. This is B.C., before Christ. This is the way the Old Testament people, you know, approach God. But now we have Jesus, who is gentle, meek, and mild. As if God, or as if Jesus sort of reduces God's majesty and makes him common. Jesus means that God is approachable. That is the good news of the gospel. But Jesus does not make God ordinary. Jesus does not make God any less majestic and holy. John Stott, he wrote this. If you read the Bible, you see that no one ever had, uh, nobody who ever met Jesus ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. They were afraid of him and wanted to run away. Or they were absolutely smitten or literally struck down with him and they tried to give their whole lives to him. What is our reaction to Jesus today? Because if it's not one of these three, then it means that we are not actually beholding the real Jesus. Because no one ever had a moderate reaction to the resurrected Christ. Draw near to God. 
Come confidently. Come with the access that he has granted through faith. But come aware that he is still great. And he is still holy. Amen? Secondly, hear God. we got to hear God. Now, we live in a world that's constantly encouraging us to speak up. You've heard it. Speak your truth. Share your heart. Say it loudly for the world to hear. Over the last few years, it seems that there's increasing pressure to always be saying something. Make a statement about this or make a statement about that. And you better say it perfectly and don't, don't leave anything out. Tell the world that you're for this or tell the world that you're against this. And if you don't speak, well, that means that you're complicit. And it's a world filled with hot takes and virtue signaling. What's the church's statement? What's your opinion? What are you going to say? Say, 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 speak, speak, speak. We've been conditioned to think that what we feel and what we say is ultimate. But the preacher has some challenges for us today, like these. Like what if you ha- what you had to say wasn't as important as you thought it was? Who has told you that in the last year? Maybe what you have to say isn't as important as you thought it was. How offensive does that sound? What? To challenge my speech is to challenge my personhood. Or how about this? What if all your words were actually more of a hindrance than they are a help? Or what if your silence was actually more valuable than your speaking? Look with me again in verses 1 through 3. Draw near to God. To draw near to God to what? Listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, business, and a fool's voice with many words. The New Living Translation actually reads this. Keep your ears open and your mouth shut. Don't kill the messenger. This is God's word. Keep your ears open and your mouth shut. Vanity is always going to plague our worship when we speak more than we listen. And the sacrifice of fools that's being mentioned here likely means, it's likely referring to the empty vows of the religious pious. You know this person. No pointing fingers. But you know this person. They heap up religious jargon and fancy prayers and lofty promises in order to sound important, in order to earn favor with God and others. They overpromise on Sunday. They underdeliver on Monday. And when it comes time to follow through, the reference here is like a temple assistant or a temple priest showing up at that person's doorstep on Monday morning and saying, okay, you made this commitment, let's follow through. And they say, whoops, just kidding. Just kidding, JK. That was my bad, my mistake. They overdeliver and underpromise in their faith. And the preacher illustrates this by saying that these empty words are like dreams, they're like visions. You ever had one of those vivid dreams where it feels so real that you wake up the next morning and it's as if it happened and your whole day has been affected? 
Dreams can feel very real, but he says those empty words, those you know, empty religious jargon words that you, you speak are like dreams. They feel real to the person, but they have very little to do with reality. They're not all that real. And if your Christianity feels futile, if it feels empty, if it feels vain, perhaps it's because you are living a delusion. You're living in a dream world. It may be because you are believing your thoughts and your words and your own visions more than God's. And so we're told here to connect this. Can I pause real quick? What if we turned up the fans just a little bit? Would anyone be offended by turning the fans up? I like literally can't think anymore. <laughs> Uh, just turn those dials all the way right until they don't turn anymore. Thank you so much up there. And so we're told how to correct this. He doesn't just leave us there. He's not just like, your, 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 your faith is a dream. Deal with it. He actually shows us how to correct it, that, that it's better that our words be few. Now, this is not saying that we don't matter. Please don't misunderstand me. And this is not saying that our words don't matter. And this is not saying that our voice doesn't matter. There is a time for everything, a time to speak, a time to sing, a time to respond. We pray to the Lord. We offer our loud shouts of thanksgiving to God. Please don't hear me wrong. The point here is that God's voice is greater and given the choice to speak or to listen in God's presence, the better choice is always going to be to listen. In Psalm 46, we read this, be still and know that I am God. Not speak loud and then know that I am God. Be quiet. Stand still. Unbusy. Unhurry yourself. Close your mouth. Open your eyes and your ears and know that I'm God. Zach Eswin said that when God is present, people become quieter. Not out of fear of being abused, but out of recognition that true good, power, beauty, and wisdom have entered the room. Did you gather this morning with that awareness? That you are in the presence of true good, power, beauty, and wisdom that the God of the universe is gathered with his people, that he's enthroned on the praises of his people? See, silence is how we reignite our wonder. Silence is how we ensure that God gets the final word and the last, I'm sorry, the first word and the final word in our lives. Silence is how we begin to discern the voice of God that's otherwise lost in all the noise. You have to be quiet to then hear. But it's not just about being silent. God is not just saying, shut up. I don't want to hear you. It's about listening. This is about listening intently. This is the point of silence so that we can hear God clearly, which by the way is very important because Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Your faith depends on your ability to listen. And the word here for listen means so much more 
than passively taking in a sound. We all know how to like just hear something. But this is so much more. This means to pay attention. This means to heed someone's voice. This means to obey. Hearing God only makes sense within the framework of a willingness to obey. When we try to control things, when we decide what we are going to receive and what we're going to disregard, uh, that seems important from the scriptures. That doesn't really seem important. That seems pretty relevant to today. That's like old ancient stuff. We should not be surprised that God feels elusive. We should not be surprised that God feels frustrating. We should not feel surprised when God feels far from us. Hearing God's voice only makes sense within the framework of a total willingness to respond in obedience. Otherwise, it too is just vanity. When we draw near to God in worship, whether it's like right now as we gather with the church or in our own times of private devotion to God, we have to come ready to receive what God has spoken to us and we have to come ready to respond in obedience to everything that we hear. Can I get an amen from the church on that? Finally, fear God. Look at me in verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one you must fear. When there's lots of speaking, there's lots of vanity. Hevel. But God is the one you must fear. Now, this may come as a shock, but the solution to our frustrations in our faith, the solution to our experience of futility within the church and in our religious experience is none other than fear. The fear of the Lord. Fear is what binds us all together. Fear is what eliminates a moderate reaction to God. Fear is what causes us to guard our steps when we draw near. Fear is what causes us to shut our mouths long enough to listen. Fear is what makes us serious about our commitments to God and his church. Fear fosters life-changing faith. Now, when the Bible talks about fear, when it instructs us to fear God, it does not mean be terrified of God. Live in terror of this God. Now, that kind of fear sees God purely as a threat to our lives and a threat to our future. It's the kind of fear that drove Adam and Eve to run and hide from God. That is a faithless fear. The New Testament tells us that the perfect love of God casts out that kind of fear. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about here. No, the kind of fear that is commended here has to do with awe and reverence. It means to be overwhelmed. It means to be consumed. This is not the kind of fear that drives us away. This is the kind of fear that draws us in. Not to run and hide, but to kneel and bow. And this is not sort of like a sentimental feeling. He's not just talking about like an emotion. He's talking about a visceral reaction. In fact, in the Bible, often fear and trembling go hand in hand. To fear the Lord is to quake in his presence, to shake with an overpowering reaction to his bigness, to his vastness. 
to fear is to tremble. But not under the weight of terror. We all know that experience. Maybe you've you ever been in like a near accident. You slam on your brakes and you barely escape hitting someone and your body's shaking. The adrenaline's like kicked in and like you're sore for three days. But for the Christian to tremble means to tremble under the weight of grace and glory. Ephesians 1 describes God's grace being lavished on him. The storehouses of God's blessing in heaven being dumped on us and us buckling under the weight of such profound grace. It means to be consumed and undone by the vastness and the beauty of a loving and holy God who has come near to us. Now I can tremble in terror, but I can also tremble in joy. I want you to think about these things in our lives where we do have these visceral reactions. Like every so often when your breath is taken away by something surprising. Or like when you get the chills in the crescendo of an epic song that you hear for the first time. Or that, that, mo that moment where you're like moved in, the, in, in, in a story or in a movie where there's like a plot twist. You're like, whoa, ah. Or like my boy Israel, as he stood here and turned and saw his bride turn the corner yesterday down this aisle. Just oh, trembling in joy. How much more ought we tremble in the presence of a holy God? I want to conclude with these words. I mentioned that we bring the hevel, we bring the smoke into our religious experience. But the surprising truth is that God brings his own smoke as well. Some homework for this week? Do a word search in the scriptures. Search the word smoke. It actually comes up a lot on Sinai, in the temple, the pillar in the, in the, in the wilderness. God's presence often manifested in smoke. And in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, we read of times when God's presence and his glory filled the temple it was so thick, it was as if the room was filled with smoke. So dense, so weighty, so overpowering, so unlike the hevel of this world that it said the priests weren't even able to stand and minister. They had to like, they couldn't even stand. But just overwhelmed by the presence of God. Could you imagine coming into the presence of God and buckling under the weight of such vastness and glory. You see, the only way to drive out the vanity and the futility in our worship reality is for God to fill it with himself. The only way to purge our lives and our church of, the, of that emptiness and that meaninglessness is to be filled with the true substance of the presence and glory of God. That is my prayer today, it's very simple. Less us, more God. Less me, more God. More the presence of God filling us. More awareness that the creator of the universe has drawn awesomely near to our small little lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you.